The Fanboy, episode 80. Hi everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is the 80th edition of the Fanboy Podcast. How's everybody doing out there? You know, I can't, like, as it left my mouth just now to say the 80th edition. Can you believe that? Oh, I, I mean, I don't know if you care as much as I do, but I can't believe I've made 80 episodes of this show. It's uh, pretty crazy. Pretty crazy, and uh, what a ride it's been. And you know what, before we get into the uh, the things that we're going to talk about today, as always, I have a little housekeeping to open with, since I did get another five-star review, and uh, you know the deal by now. So here we go. Uh, Apple user Ali, uh, semicolon, semicolon, semicolon 24, wrote MFR, you rock, and it's a five-star review. They said, love your passion, bro. You are living my dream. Mad respect. Hope to shake your hand someday. It feels like we're sitting there talking superheroes. Keep it up. Love your bochinches. They are so right. Uh, thank you, Ali. Uh, you know, or, or Ali, or how, I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce that, but Ali, Ali, uh, I would like to shake your hand too one day. So hopefully that happens. Um, it's really nice of you to say that I, you know I'm living your dream or whatnot, but you know, it is important to to acknowledge what our dreams are and and when we're living our best lives, right? That's something I've been talking about a lot since the past summer, when I started making a more concerted effort to really take note of when something truly special is happening, so that it's not just something that I remember a few years from now and remember it wistfully and sadly. You know, I, I try to notice how lucky I am as the lucky, incredible things are happening, and. You know, a couple weeks ago, I got probably the greatest compliment that someone like me could ever ask for. You know, I've been making friends with my across the street neighbors as of late, which is not something I do, by the way. As a New Yorker, we tend to just kind of have tunnel vision. Yeah, I grew up in an apartment building where even if you're in the elevator with a quote unquote neighbor, you just stare straight ahead and hope they don't talk to you. It's it's a sad state of being, but that's how New Yorkers kind of are. We're trained to just like, I don't deal with anyone unless it's a friend of mine or someone I know very well. It's not like in like small town America where you know, you're walking around and if you lock eyes with someone on the street, you go, oh, hi, how are you? Lovely day we're having, like all those kinds of things. And you grew up in Manhattan, that sort of stuff does not happen. But I digress. So I've been making friends with my neighbors and these are people who I've seen now for the better part of the last year and change. We bump, you know, we, we walk near each other on the streets every morning to and from school because they have small kids also. So when they're taking their kids to school, so am I and vice versa. And, you know, we've occasionally done the like, high thing or whatever, but in general, you know, we kind of keep to ourselves. And now that we're becoming friends, they told me something, you know, um, you know, it's a couple over there. So the wife was telling me, uh, you know, we noticed you before we all became friends, you know, and, and I remarked to my husband that that guy just seems happy. And I know it's like a common, it's like a simple thing to say about someone. But the fact that I just seemingly just exude happiness when I'm walking around on the street means a lot to me. 
And I didn't say anything at the time. And she, I just kind of said, oh, that's cool. And then she kept going. And she's like, he just seems like someone who seems to just love what he's doing. So we got to find out what he's doing. So that's why, you know, like as soon as we became friends, they're like, what do you do for a living? And I explained some of what I do. And it kind of all made sense to them why it is that I seem to walk with a little pep in my step, I guess. But either way, you know, it, it's... It's just nice. It's nice that to outsiders, to strangers, they see me and they see a happy, content person. And, you know, I've had a lot of people sort of con convey that to me that, you know, they have an admiration for what I get to do or that, you know, that my, what I'm doing is a dream of theirs. And that's why I say, like, by all means, if this is your dream, go out and do it. You know, I know at times I've been a little down on the fact that there's no real entry level for this line of work that I'm in, that any schmuck with a laptop and a microphone can be a blogger and a podcaster and all whatever, you know, I know I sort of like down talk that sometimes, but it's also what's beautiful about this, that any of you can try. There's no success. There's no guarantee you'll succeed. But if this is something you want to do, if you want to comment on the things that you love and analyze it and speak to people involved in that industry and whatever, you know, I'm no one special. I'm nothing. I'm just a dude with a lot of time on his hands and I'm making it happen. So if you've got the time and the desire and it's in there, just go for it. There's no reason for you not to be at least trying to live your dream. You know, it's like I've said many times, you know, what are you doing on a day-to-day -day basis to move towards your joy, to move towards your happiness? What goals, what actions, what, what are you working on? Because I know sometimes it seems insurmountable. Sometimes where you want to be and where you are seem like, oh my, how am I ever going to get there? But, you know, I always kind of go back to the Zen thing, the sort of Zen teaching of, you know, a journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. So don't think so much about the gigantic task. Think about what's the very next thing I could do. And if I just keep putting one foot in front of the other, before I know it, I'll be there one day. Um... So anyway, I just, I, I want to thank you, Ali, Ali, for mentioning that this is like a dream of yours and that you have respect that I get to do it. But please, if you want to do it, do it too. There's a lot of room. There's, there's room for everyone to give this a shot. Uh, and uh, I wish everyone luck. By the way, you're going to hear sounds today. This seems to be that one Friday a month where my upstairs neighbors hire their cleaning crew. So I don't know how much the mic is picking it up right now, but it is insanity upstairs right now. They're vacuuming very thoroughly. I swear they're ripping the, the, the floor apart and, and dusting beneath the hardwood. I don't know what they're doing, but it's insanely loud. And unfortunately, there's not much I could do about it. Uh, I just can't. Maybe one day when there's a Revenge of the Fans headquarters somewhere and I could pay to have a soundproof recording studio, then we won't have to worry about this anymore. But for now, every, you know, there's one Friday a month when I'm recording this show when I got to deal with that awful racket upstairs. And unfortunately, you do too. But hopefully the show is interesting enough even uh, without all that. But um, I digress. Uh, what I kind of want to open on today, by the way, is the fact that like the Aquaman buzz is insane right now. It's off the charts. I haven't spoken to a single person who's seen it who has said anything short of awesome things about it. 
And you know, lots of people can't get into specifics because there are embargoes and, you know, all kinds of rules that they're under in order to, you know, there's a specific date when they are allowed to start speaking about these things publicly. But privately, it's the talk of the town. Lots of bloggers have seen it. Lots of people have spoken to others who've, who've gone to some of these early fan screenings that have taken place. And the buzz is real. And the buzz is, like, wonderful. I mean, it's almost getting to the point where some of it is like it's... It's almost sort of hyperbolic now. We're getting to where... Like, some of what I'm hearing is like... People are comparing it to some beloved superhero movies and saying, this is better than that one. And I'm just like, all right, all right, all right, take a deep breath. You know, maybe it is, but, you know, that's that's going to get people too excited now. So I'm like, at this point now, at this point, I've heard enough good and pretty much no bad, by the way. I haven't heard a, I haven't heard a single person say, oh, it's a mess, it's unwatchable, it's this, it's that. I feel like the most negative thing I heard is still a compliment. The most negative thing I heard was that early round of buzz, right? Remember a couple of months ago when some people were saying that it's being compared to like a phase one MCU movie? And even that though, like, you know, they weren't saying it's a bad movie. They're just, you know, at the time, those people who saw it felt like it was a little bit of a, you know, it was an okay, it was a pretty good time. Not, it didn't, not necessarily the heights that the MCU would get to eventually. Um, yeah, whatever, but just, it was not, you know, it's, I've heard nothing bad. I've heard nothing bad, and that is good. But at this point, I'm like, I don't even need to hear anymore. Now let's just get to the big day. I want to see it. Speaking of the big day, I'm happy to announce that as soon as tickets go on sale, uh, I'm going to purchase a couple of rows for opening night, December 21st, at the same theater where a bunch of us got together in October to see Halloween. We're going to have our next Revenger watch party out here in Queens. For those of you who want to join us in the Queens, New York, tri-state area, whoever wants to make the trip in, um, we're going to see Aquaman on opening night, December 21st in Forest Hills, Queens at the Midway Theater. Uh, by the way, I tend to pick that one if, if, if anyone from those previous watch parties is wondering why it is that I seem to have such a, a thing with that theater. It's primarily because of the ease uh, the ease of getting there. You know, the all mass transit gets there, whether it's buses or LIRR or subway. And there's, you know, it's easy to drive to and it's close to home. And there's lots of nice spots around there to go to. So I tend to choose that. If, if enough of you rise up and say, well, you know, how about we do it at this other place? Listen, I'm open to suggestions. But right now, the tentative plan is United Artists Midway Stadium 9, December 21st. Come see Aquaman with us if that's something you're interested in. Let me know. Email me at mfr at revengeofthefans.com. Um... But okay, so now about Aquaman itself. You know, a couple days ago, uh, a listener and follower on the, over on the Twitter named uh, Mike underscore F-M-E-R, Mike Fmer, uh, sent me a cool quote that he came across from uh, Aquaman director James Wan. And I want to share that. And I also want to thank Mike for sharing this with me because I didn't read that piece. I didn't know he said this. But it struck a chord with me. It's, it's, it's going to sort of inform a good amount of what I have to say here today. So James Wan said, Any great superhero story should make you feel that you learn something from these characters and you have the ability to do good yourself. And you don't need a cape to be able to do that. Uh, I mean, listen, 
That's that is prime. That's exactly what I love about the superhero genre and what I love about superhero movies, and which is why you know I I get very sort of opinionated and very upset when I feel like a movie doesn't really exude that sort of positivity in terms of you know if if a superhero movie doesn't on some level make you want to run out and be a hero yourself my personal read on it is that it's a missed opportunity because that's what all these stories are you know these they're allegories for real life and they're moral plays and they're ways to try to get you to think about you know if i if i could help people the way this character does the world would be a better place you know and that's the kind of thing that really speaks to me that's the, that's the sort of thing that touches me to my uh, to, in, in my heart and as, as a viewer and as a person and as everything and thinking about that got me thinking about how it's interesting that the themes and elements that we gravitate towards, each one of us as individuals gravitate towards in a movie or in a song or in a TV series or whatever form of art it is that moves us the most, the themes that, that really capture our imaginations are also sort of windows into our souls, if you think about it. And if you're willing to kind of look at yourself that deeply, uh, I strongly recommend it. It, it could be pretty rewarding. Because um, I was thinking about like, you know, there's certain themes that I know I'm a huge sucker for. That if a movie has X, Y, or Z in it, I'm instantly going to be quicker to be kind on it when I review it. I'm instantly going to be more invested as an audience member. And I'm also probably more likely to like get really emotionally, like I, I might cry, I might cheer in this in my seat. I'm, I'm more, uh, you know, prone to freak out at in, a, in a very emotional way if certain themes are in there. So I started thinking about the themes that speak the most of me. And, I, and, and it was funny to me, I'm like, wow, I, I, I could play psychiatrist on myself right now based on these themes because they do really speak to very intimate parts of my psyche to my heart to who i am deep in my soul um and i think it's something you guys might want to think about doing too just to kind of understand yourself as a fan as a lover of art as a lover of fiction as a lover of characters it, it might be interesting for you to figure out what are the specific things that speak to me and what do those things say about me? Why is it that those themes affect me so deeply? Because we, you know, we all have different things that speak to us in different ways. So for me, for example, like any movie that has anything to do with a father and son, uh, a very strong father-son bond where the father seems to you know, make sacrifices for his son and the, and the son loves and admires his father. And, you know, and, if, and especially if there's any sort of tragedy involved there, you know, the father passes away or the son is in peril or whatever. I'm a huge sucker for anything having to do with fathers and sons. And as I think about it, I mean, it's really not a mystery. You know, that comes specifically from the fact that my father and I have a very, very special bond. He's been like my best friend since I was a little boy. You know, because I always had like a strange relationship or and not like strange, like he and I had a strange relationship, but it's a strange dynamic to be a child of divorce, especially when it happens super young. You know, my, my, my parents split up when I was like three or four. So for me, I, I kind of grew up in this weird thing where like, I love my dad, but I only see him on the weekends. 
So five days a week, I'm at home with mom. I'm doing school things. I'm kind of living that life. And then on Saturday morning, daddy picks me up and I get to spend, you know, until tomorrow afternoon with him. So, you know, it, it, it was always a strange dynamic to have to just, this is how my life is and hearing my friends talk about the things that they did with their parents this weekend. And I'm like, wow, parents together, interesting. But what made my father so special to me was the way that he made those weekends as magical as possible for me. Because he knew that there were things going on in my life that were beyond my control. There were things that, you know, perhaps weren't so great. And he made my weekends magical. He made me feel special and important. He listened to me. He'd take me out to movies. We'd go to the arcade. We'd, you know, he'd stay up all night playing Legos with me, you know, and, and creating silly characters and nurturing my imagination. And, you know, just my weekends with my dad are really a huge part of who I am. Because without those, I don't know who I would have been or who I would be. I probably wouldn't be a very good person in all honesty. Um, I don't want to put that on anyone. I don't want to sound like I'm throwing shade at my mother. You know, she tried her absolute best. And the older I get, the more I realize how much she she succeeded. But let's just say it took me a while to realize those things. I'm, I'm realizing them now with age. But at the time, I, uh, I, anyway, my dad, my dad really growing up, he, he's a huge fundamental part of how I was able to keep my head on straight through all my formative years. And, you know, like more than anything, you know, he showed me how a person can change and how a person can better their lives and better themselves and, and kind of do a complete 180. That's why, like, sometimes when I'm talking about controversial figures and, I'm, and I speak of them in ways like I'm trying to give them a chance or, or I see that they're capable of good despite doing some heinous things in their past, a lot of it comes from that. A lot of it comes from what I learned from being a son of my father and seeing how a person really can, if it's important enough to them, do away with the things that made them lousy human beings and can turn that whole thing around and become someone really special and really important and really a, a beacon of hope. So, you know, my, my relationship with my dad's very important and that's why whenever there's a movie that, that deals with those themes or a TV show, you know, I'm instantly, I'm locked in hook, line and sinker. Um, and something else that's always kind of spoken to me too, and this is another thing that was just like, oh wow, that really does that's a deep part of who I am, is what I said before, what James Wan had to say about heroism, about the themes in these superhero movies, what it means to, to step out of yourself and to help others. And specifically, when there's like a, a dual identity involved, I've always been fascinated with the dual identity. That's why I've always loved werewolves, and that's why I've always loved the Incredible Hulk, you know, remember I was obsessed with like Teen Wolf, the uh, Michael J. Fox movie in the 80s. Because, you know, whenever you seem like this, this unimposing, nice sort of person who people kind of take for granted, and then you have this other side of you that no one really sees, I find that sort of thing interesting. So whether it's Bruce Banner, whether it's, you know, it's Clark Kent. You know, that's why it's one of the things that brought me to Superman. The idea of the mild-mannered man who just seems like, oh, by golly gee willikers, oh shucks, your nice friend 
who it might seem sort of invisible or unimportant to you most of the time. Little do you know what he's capable of. You know, he, he has the power to save the world. You know, that sort of stuff has always just uh, spoken to me. Any, any character who the world perceives one way, um, that's just, that, that really does it for me. So, like, a little, no, a little secret. Are you guys ready for this? Are you ready? Uh, I used to fancy myself a super, you know, a, a hero when I was a little kid. And I don't mean that like, you know, I'd run around with a towel around my neck and, and dress up as a superhero or something like that. No, I, I really, in my, in my mind, I thought of myself as someone who was here to help others and here to like save people, quote unquote. And so like, despite the fact that I was a real nerdy little kid, you know, I was, you know, I, I was pretty awkward and, uh, I was like a teacher's pet and I walked around with a fanny pack filled with my asthma inhalers. I was, you know, I was not a cool kid. I was mocked. I was mocked pretty heavily as a child. <coughs> Sorry. And, um, growing up like in the, through the eighties, like, you know, like in the early nineties, all the kids I knew were listening to like rap and hip hop and Onyx and all these other kinds of like you know, Naughty by Nature and MC Hammer and all kinds of, you know, the hip-hop was huge in the late 80s, early 90s. And I was listening to Elvis Presley and the Beatles and Chuck Berry and whatever. Like, I was always kind of on a different wavelength than my peers on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. But what was interesting was I had this second gear. I felt like I had this other thing inside me that would rarely come out. And a couple of times through my schooling career, it did come out where a classmate would come over to me or a friend of mine would come over to me and go, you know, so-and-so shoved me off the swings. And all of a sudden, a, a, a flip would get switched, a switch would get flipped, and I would run over, you know, I would go over to the person who did the thing, and I'd shove them off the swing, and I'd go, it's her turn right now. Why did you push her off? And then, you know, that, that would sort of diffuse the situation. And it was always kind of cool to see the surprise on people's faces when I would do stuff like that. And, you know, my, 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 my heroic feats, which there were a few like that, which, you know, listen, they're not that heroic. But in my mind, it was important that I be of service to those around me, where if someone was in need or if someone was wronged, I could come to their aid. Um... The, you know, the, the biggest thing I ever did was actually defending my mother. You know, once in the middle of the street, I'm in, I'm like seven years old, it's second grade. And this guy that my mom had recently broken up with had revealed himself to be a real creep. And he was like drugged out and he did not take the breakup very well. And while we're walking home from school one day, this, you know, he comes over, he grabs my mom by the shoulder and starts punching her in the face right in front of me and no one's instantly coming to help and I'm just this little kid but I flipped the switch and I, I went over to him and I started kicking his leg and I, I, I'm kicking and stomping on his foot trying to get him to stop hitting my mother in the face and at some point I get him right in the shin and he and he moves back and he shoves me to the floor and it gives my mom a chance to get away from him, grab me by the hand, and we run the hell out of there. And the next thing I know, we're in the police precinct on 100th Street between Columbus and Amsterdam. And we're filling out police reports. And, you know, uh, that was the last time we ever saw that guy. But 
you know, I, I, I think about that episode about how like, you know, it was always just been in my nature to like, I have to jump forward. I have to defend. I have to protect. And even though I may not seem like the most imposing figure, if you do something to harm someone I care about, good luck to you because I'm going to do everything in my power to stop you. And that's one of the reasons why I, you know, heroism, these themes of of the superhuman who puts themselves second and everyone else first means so much to me. That's why I could probably talk about Man of Steel and the, the ways in which that film let me down for hours and hours every day uh, all the time. And people probably get tired of hearing me talk about the modern Superman movies and the elements of, of it that, that I find lacking. But it's just because that's just who I am. That's those elements of the selfless savior who no matter what's going on with them can still be a supportive friend in when you're in need who could still put everything else second and you first that's always the stuff that really speaks to me and so i kind of want like your homework this week you know i want you to think about what themes really speak to me what are the elements in a movie that really spark my imagination and speak to who I am as a person. And then try to see where it comes from. Try to follow that, you know, follow the arc backward towards, you know, why is it that these things mean so much to me? Because it's interesting. And that's part of what I was talking about a couple weeks ago, too, about how, what, what, how special it is to be a passionate fan the way we are. The fact that we could experience things as strongly as we do says a lot about our ability and how how deep these things connect with us on a spiritual level. You know, because there are people who just see movies and whatever, who just are able to like, all right, I saw that, now I'm going to shrug it off and walk away and never talk about it again. But that's not what you do. It's not what I do. It's because we connect intimately with this collective dream. We, we, we buy in to this world and these circumstances created by someone else because we see ourselves in them. So it's interesting to try to figure out what is it about myself that I see in these movies? What is it about myself that makes me invest so much in these characters? Because I think that's really interesting stuff. I think it, you know, I, I think it takes a special kind of person to be able to look at a work of art or a, a book or any, anything, any kind of story and see themselves so intimately connected to what's happening. Because if you're able to do that, that means you're capable of great empathy, great sympathy. It means you're able to lock, you know, tap into the thoughts and feelings and emotions of someone outside of yourself. You'd be amazed how many people can't seem to do that, where they just can't relate and they, they, they don't know how to just like go, all right, well, that's how you feel. I don't know why you feel that way and I don't care, but how I feel is more important. You know, a lot of people kind of have that outlook on things. But if you're able to put yourself in someone else's shoes, I think the world is a better place for it. So that's why I kind of feel like the people who love things the way that we do, you know, we need to be out there kind of sharing our love with the world instead of our hate. And maybe that's why I get so like bent out of shape when I see fans being mad to each other, you know, being mean to each other and demeaning one another. It's like, no, this is stuff, this is supposed to bring us together. You know, this is what makes us alike. It's not supposed to be what makes us different, you know. Um, but okay, I just uh, I just wanted to touch on all that stuff because I, I do think it's an interesting thing to explore. 
the things that we take out of the art we watch and what those things say about us. So give that some thought. I'd love to hear, you know, what you come up with about yourself, what discoveries you make about how the art you love reflects the person you are. Um, and speaking of art I love, George Lucas changed the world. <laughs> I, uh, I know that wasn't much of a segue, but, you know, one of the other things I really want to talk about today is Star Wars, because there's been some cool Star Wars news as of late, and that really is my other love. You know, Star Wars will always hold a special place in my heart, and I know I spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about DC and Superman and Batman. And all. Granted, DC is my first love, Superman in particular, but my other love is Star Wars, and, you know... I say George Lucas changed the world without a hint of hyperbole. I mean it. I mean it. Because if you really, you know, if you think about the impact that Star Wars had when it arrived in the world in 1977 and the way it brought like an entire world together, there are fans of that movie all over the world and they could get together at conventions and they have this shared bond. There's this connection that to this day, you know, it's just, it's so powerful. People, you know, there's a kinship that you feel with someone in a vintage Star Wars shirt and the way you guys can talk about the old movies and, and where you were when you first saw it and how you felt and what toys you had and what video games you liked. And like Star Wars in general is so much more than a movie. It's so much more than an intellectual property. It's this great communal adventure that we've all been on now for the last 41 years, you know? And that's why it, it's crazy to think what's, what's, what's happened to George Lucas in the last 41 years. And I feel like if you look at the way people speak of him and the way people have treated him since the turn of the century, since the prequels have come out, you can kind of see how we ended up where we are these days with a lot of really self-entitled, bratty jackass gatekeeper fans who think it's perfectly okay to trash creators to trash actors to trash writers to trash fans who disagree with them but still love star wars but don't love star wars the same way that they do like you could really see that we were heading on that path by the way people went after george lucas after the prequels because what he did i mean you know he changed the world with, with this little idea he did, with that original trilogy and the way he told those stories and the way those characters captured the universal imaginations of generations of people, who else do you think, who else can claim that? You know, there are very few people who can say that this thing that I typed out on my, yeah, on my typewriter at home and got, and then produced and turned, brought into life. How many people can say that they did that and the world was pretty much a different place after that because of the, the way people took to it? Not many. And yet when you talk about George Lucas nowadays, it's in this like, oh yeah, George, oh, I'm so glad he sold Star Wars to, you know, so someone else can make the movies. Oh, thank God he's not involved. You know, people love to dog him and they talk about Jar Jar Binks and they talk about the prequels and they talk about, you know, how awful Attack of the Clones was or whatever. You know, that people have a million reasons to like mock and roll their eyes and be dismissive towards Lucas and his legacy. And it's really sad how like, how short-sighted 
so many people can be and how fickle fandom can be that you could take a guy who gave us this gift and yeah maybe he lost his touch towards the end there you know maybe uh, maybe he did but that will never change what he gave us so if you are anything less than grateful and appreciative for george lucas and what he's given us then you, you know there's something up with you there's a weird entitled hate in your heart that you need to get remedied somehow because i hate to say it but like how dare you be try to belittle mr lucas you know and i'm not saying this as some like breathless die hard tone deaf fan listen i know that he's done things he's he made some movies that made you question and, and some comments along the way where you're like really that's what you think we liked about star wars like you know where he sort of he's misdiagnosed what it is that makes the property so special so listen, I get it. I know that he's he's made some sort of, you know, weird tone deaf remarks and and made films that really kind of exemplify that maybe he doesn't know why we love Star Wars so much. But that'll never change the fact that he gave us this gift. You know, and if you think about it, it, it it's a gift that keeps on giving because he didn't just create a legion of fans. An entire generation of storytellers was born with Star Wars in their DNA. You know, all the the J.J. Abramses of the world, you know, and the Ryan Johns. I mean, if you look at the people who are now involved with Star Wars, you know, these are all people who grew up on this stuff, who love this stuff. And that to me is like, you know, it's what makes me glad in a way that he's not involved. I know that's a weird sort of pivot after saying what a gift he's been. But in a way, you know, that's why I, I, I'm glad that there's we, we kind of get to see where the new blood is going to take things, even if I don't agree with how it's going to go. You know, I loved episode seven. I did not love episode eight. But that doesn't change the fact that I'm glad Ryan Johnson got to make his Star Wars movie. I may not have loved it, but I'm glad he did it. Because I put myself in his shoes. and I think about the fact that, like, you know, when I was a kid, I grew up with a closet filled with Star Wars toys. Action figures, AT-AT walkers, TIE fighters, Millennium Falcons, you know. And, you know, in my room, my room was my safe haven where I would go and disappear into a world of my imagination. And I would tell Star Wars stories. I'd be there on the bed with my Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader and they'd be fighting and then they'd be teaming up and, and I would have sound effects and I would be playing music off, like, you know, a CD of a score in the background and I would get my little camcorder and I'd make my little Star Wars stories. And that's why, like, it's so beautiful to me to think about what it must feel like to be Abrams or Johnson or John Favreau or, you know, any of the, the, the Benioff and Vice, the people who are going to get to tell new Star Wars stories. Like, it's, it's amazing how they must feel to be able to now go, okay, not only am I a fan of this, but now I'm going to add a whole new chapter in that world. It's a beautiful thing, and I want to see where it goes. So that's why when I think about Simon Pegg and I think about what he said earlier this week that, you know, he thinks the new movies sort of miss George Lucas's vision or his imagination or whatever it was that he said, I'm like, you know, yes and no. Because yes, you know, I, I do wish that people were more open to Lucas's presence. You know, I wish Lucasfilm had perhaps, you know, kept him on as a more sort of hands-on consultant because I do think he has great ideas. Um, 
But all in all, I'm really happy to see where things go from here. For me, that's like, that that's the stuff that really sort of gets to me. You know, I'm excited to see where, where the new generation takes us. So that's just kind of, I, I really wanted to touch on that. And it's really sort of special what's gone on these last couple of weeks with Star Wars, namely with the TV series. Um, because if you look at it, we have Diego Luna now confirmed to get his own TV show. We have Pedro Pascal now confirmed to be the lead in The Mandalorian. And that's a Mexican and a Chilean. And then we have Oscar Isaac in as one of the lead characters in the main new Star Wars trilogy. And he's like Cuban and Guatemalan or something. And, you know, I got to tell you, this uh, diversity stuff ain't half bad. And, and that may be funny for you guys to hear me say, because some of you, you know, some longtime listeners know that I have a bit of a checkered history with the idea of diversity and inclusion. And granted, that comes from me, a guy who's Cuban and Puerto Rican. I'm a minority, and you'd think that I would care very deeply about that subject. And hell yeah, my aunt, Elizabeth Pena, you know, she was seen as like a pioneer Latina actress through the 80s and 90s for some of the roles she booked and, and sort of how she was able to change some perceptions about Hispanics in Hollywood. So, you know, you'd think that I would be very, you know, rah, rah, rah with my pom-poms, but, you know, there have been plenty of times where I'm like, you know, the amount of diversity in a film doesn't register for me. I, I'm very big on, did I like the movie? Did, did I enjoy the characters? Did I enjoy the plot? Did I enjoy the journey? Did I enjoy the craftsmanship that went into it? I don't really notice if any of the leads were Hispanic or if any of the leads were, you know, if there were if females had enough lines of dialogue in it or, you know, there, there are certain things that I you know that the sort of social justice generation that we're living in, you know, is very, very loud about and more, all the power to them, but that just doesn't register for me. I, I can't quite come with you on it because it's not it's just not something that means anything to me really but it is interesting to note the pride i'm feeling about isaac luna and pascal being these prominent figures in star wars it really is pretty special i guess to to see me reflected in star wars and i guess a part of me just purely hypothetically you know i wonder if that would have helped me growing up. I wonder if this sort of stuff happening when I was a kid might have made me feel more, you know, um, more involved, more seen, more like, like I had a, there was a higher ceiling for me for what I could do. I don't know. You know, and, and I'm not looking for excuses. I'm happy with my life and how things have shaken out. And, you know, do I wish I would have tried a little harder to be a, a working actor? Yeah, sure. But overall, I'm very happy with where I'm at. But it's interesting to see, like, you know, it just makes me wonder how, how something like this would have impacted me as a kid. Regardless, it's great to see these Hispanic actors at the forefront. And, and I wonder how that's going to impact the generation of up-and-coming Latin artists. And I'm, I'm really excited about that. And in particular, you know, this Mandalorian series, as I've said before looks like it's going to be one hell of a time. And having Pedro Pascal, who is a, a dynamite actor, regardless of what country he's from, in it as the lead, I mean, to me, that's like, what more can you ask for, you know? 
And then having Diego Luna back now to, to re-explore Cassian Andor, you know, there is some really exciting storytelling possibilities there. And I'm very excited to see what happens. And, th and there's already this interesting sort of synergy, right? You guys see that story from Making Star Wars that came out this week that apparently the Rogue One Death Troopers will be showing up in The Mandalorian. Um, it's going to be interesting. It really is. These next couple of years to see what happens on Disney+, Plus, to see the ways in which the series connect to one another uh, yeah, the, and, and connect to the movies... You know, this has the potential to be a really special time to be a Star Wars fan. And in that sense, I'm kind of glad that they're backing off a little bit on their cinematic plans and focusing on the TV stuff so much. Because, you know, I think the television world is a much more fertile ground for long-form, more nuanced storytelling, where perhaps the stakes aren't as high. Where, you know, not, you're not under such a microscope when it's a TV series and it's on some streaming network. It allows the things to sort of play out sort of in their, you know, just gently sort of over time in their own space, as opposed to these two hours in a movie are now going to get analyzed by millions of people because there's no other Star Wars content for them to focus so much on. Now, you know, I, I, I hope that this sort of helps the way we take these things in, the way we appreciate them, Hopefully we're a little less at each other's throats about it. I don't know. Maybe that's me being a little too optimistic. But right now, I think it's a pretty dynamite time to be a Star Wars fan. And it's a pretty dynamite time to be a Hispanic male who doesn't see themselves represented that much in popular culture. And, you know, like, uh, <laughs> while speaking of, of Hispanics and in, in Latinos in popular culture, Narcos is back for season three, and I can't wait for that. I'm not going to talk about it too much here because I haven't seen it yet. But, hello, Diego Luna, Michael Pena, you know, and I love the first couple seasons with Pedro Pascal and Boyd Holbrook. You know, I can't wait. And I just, it's cool, Narcos uh, Mexico, whatever it is that it's called. Uh, I cannot wait to see that, even though I, I'm a little sad that it looks like they're sort of retconning or ignoring the fact that season two ended with Pedro Pascal's character still as the lead. They were, they were kind of like, you know, setting up the idea that he was going to be venturing into Mexico now to deal with the cartels there. And I don't know what happened. No one's really reported on it. But, you know, Pascal is out, and instead they're doing, like, a whole news story set in Mexico. So, you know, we'll, we'll see how that aspect plays out. But, you know, I'm seeing some early reviews pop up, and I can't wait to dive into Narcos. I think that's a great, great series. Um, and I just want to wrap up a little bit uh, talking about Harry Potter and Fantastic Beasts, because I did get a chance to see... Uh, Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald this past Wednesday at a press screening. I actually brought my little girl with me. I brought Talia because uh, she's seen a couple of the Harry Potter movies and I thought, you know, she might get, an, might get a kick out of this and we could use a little daddy-daughter date. We haven't gone out, just she and I, for a while. And of course, for you parents at home, I am going to balance it out. I'm taking my son to see Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse on Monday night. So, you know, the, the sibling rivalry will be okay. It's, we're going tit for tat. Trust me, if you're a parent, you understand the struggle. But, um, so yeah, I went to go see that, and I didn't particularly care for it. You know, I wrote a review that you could find on revengeofthefans.com. I gave it a C. Uh, to me, it just, you know, 
Where it fell short for me was primarily in the characters. I feel like there, there's no real, there's no one there that I could really sink my teeth into. I, I'm someone who I try my best to find my my way into the story whenever I'm watching a movie. Kind of like who's the character that I can relate to? Who's the character? that I can experience this story as and who I can sort of, you know, just kind of be my my, my guide into this sort of far-flung world. I do that. Maybe it's not a good thing to do. I don't know, but it's how I take in a story. And, for example, in the first Fantastic Beasts, that character was Dan Fogler's uh, Jacob Kowalski. He kind of acted as our gateway into the wizarding world for that episode, for that movie. Just like Harry Potter himself did that for the first wave of Harry Potter stories. You know, the fact that he was kind of a fish out of water, that he didn't really know the magical wizarding world. You know, it was easy to relate to him and put yourself in his shoes because he was experiencing a lot of the crazy stuff that happens in those stories the same way you would with this sense of like, what is going on? Is this normal? Wow. You know, he feels all the stuff that, that you, the reader or you, the viewer would feel. And for me, the, this second one, Fantastic Beasts and the Crimes of Grindelwald didn't have any character in it who I could relate to. It just seemed like, you know, I, I just read the review and I kind of go into what, how I kind of view each of the characters and how it was just hard for me to get invested. And there's a lot of stuff that happens, but at the same time, not a lot happens. You kind of get the sense that they're running out the clock, that it's like, all right, well, we said there's going to be five movies. So we need to have everyone's character development move really slowly because if we can't wrap this up in just one movie, we got to try to make this last five. So you almost kind of get the sense that they've asked Rowling to really kind of drag things out. You know how we feel about like the Marvel Netflix series, how like they would all be much better if they were eight episodes instead of like 13 because you get that sense of like we are slowing down the character development just to add filler. So oddly enough, despite all the different things happening and the plot machinations in this movie, I also feel like not a ton happens or not a ton happens that couldn't have been achieved in about an hour and that we could have moved on to even further story bits, but they're not going to do that. You know, they're trying to drag it out. They're trying to make a five-part Fantastic Beasts saga out of this. And, you know, Aaron Verola, my buddy over there from the Fanboy Garage, uh, he told me, you know, he asked me over on the Twitter, he asked me, you know, how would, like, what sort of relationship would I like these movies to have with Harry Potter? And, you know, now, now that they are showing themselves to be more of a straight up prequel as opposed to a spinoff, you know, how would I handle it? Because I, I, I should first preface this by saying, you know, I was hoping this was going to be a spinoff and not a prequel. When they first announced it, and they said that it was going to center on Newt Scamander and it was going to, you know, and it was going to be set like 60, like 70 years before the events depicted of Harry Potter. I was relieved. I'm like, OK, good, because I'm not a huge prequel person. In general, I find prequels are tricky territory because we all know how the story is going to end. And unless there were some really huge lingering questions, I don't really need prequels. So I was excited when I thought this was going to basically be a complete standalone separate story, but set in the Harry Potter world, you know, set in a world where there are wizards, set in a world where there are wizarding schools and aurors and all that other stuff. I was excited to see a completely original story. And instead, while the first film seemed to be going 
ever so slightly in that direction. I feel like now they're just, you know, they, they are flat out, straight up turning it into a Harry Potter prequel. And, you know, I, I would have enjoyed it better if it was just Newt's Commander's adventures and, and, and looking for fantastic beasts and how to save, protect, and understand them and all the kooky adventures he ends up on while trying to do his mission of finding mystical beasts. You know, that would have been awesome. It's just its own thing. What's Newt's world? What? Who is his love interest? Who is his villain? You know, just, just completely its own thing. And the fact now that we have all this Dumbledore presence and now we're in Hogwarts and now it really just seems like this whole thing is building up to the Harry Potter franchise, you know, for me is just kind of a bummer. So how would I, how would I answer Aaron's question? What sort of relationship would I want it to have? You know, honestly, I already kind of said it. They're really, you know, from this point on, I, w I would be much more relieved if for the third, fourth, and fifth entries in this, we kind of go into completely unexplored territory with characters we know next to nothing about. You know, as much as I love Jude Law as Dumbledore, I thought he was great, one of the high points in the movie. I just, I really don't need to find out more about any of these characters' backstories. I like the Harry Potter stories to stand on their own and allow me to use my imagination to fill in the blanks and, and imagine how we got there. To kind of have all this stuff spelled out for me doesn't help me at all. It doesn't enhance my, uh, my fandom of the property. It doesn't raise my interest any further. So I would love it if somehow we can get back to this being a story about Newt Scamander and maybe finally figure him out a little bit. Because the way Eddie Redmayne plays him, he's very sort of enigmatic. He's not a, a lead character that you could necessarily throw yourself into. Because he's very, he's got that sort of, you know, he plays him very sort of like mousy and he doesn't give eye contact and he's sort of awkward and emotionally unavailable and all that sort of stuff. I want to get to know Newt. I want to know why he is the way that he is. I want to know what it is that makes him tick. Why is it that he's so distrusting of fellow humans and fellow wizards and he actually has a better relationship with these animals than he does with people? You know, that that's kind of what I'd like to see. I, I want to explore the adventures of Newt Scamander. I don't want to see Harry Potter Zero. That doesn't do it for me. So I don't know if that really answers your question. I don't know if you were hoping I would you know, find a way to connect things even more, but I would like to connect them even less. Uh, and honestly, you know, I kind of feel like the Fantastic Beasts and the Harry Potter franchise overall could use some new blood. You know, I, I almost feel like the first two entries in this new, in this new prequel series are almost like the first two entries in the Harry Potter film series. Remember where Chris Columbus came in and he made two very sort of safe Harry Potter movies? Didn't really reinvent the wheel, didn't really do anything that, that, that made it you know, enhance the book story in any way. You know, they were fine. They were perfectly serviceable, you know, kids, family, magical entertainment movies. And then for the third one... Alfonso Cuaron came in for Prisoner of Azkaban and he sort of injected a whole new energy into things. And even though it was still based on the books and fairly faithful to the books, it felt a little different. It started to explore these characters on a deeper level. 
And a part of me wonders if after, you know, how many has he made now? David Yates has made like, you know, five or six movies set in this universe. It might be time for him to like take a break. It might be time to let another filmmaker come in and put their vision on things. View the Harry Potter world, the Fantastic Beasts world, through a different filter for a movie or two. I think I would like that. I think that would be kind of my hope for where Fantastic Beasts goes from here. But all in all, you know, the movie opens today. If you're going to go check it out this weekend, I hope you like it a hell of a lot more than I did. Um, and that's it. That's all I got to say about Fantastic Beasts and Harry Potter. I'm going to leave you today with the uh, your referral for the week. And also just a quick announcement, too. Next week, there will be no fanboy podcast because it's you know uh, thanksgiving week and i'm kind of enjoying the holiday off there will also be no um fanboy garage you know chris and aaron have informed me that they will not return until after the holiday and for the revengers i still have to speak to brett and vanessa about it but since i'm attending the spider-man into the spider-verse screening with my son on monday night which is when uh, we typically record the revengers we're going to get you that episode on Thanksgiving Eve instead of on Tuesday. We're going to get you the episode on Wednesday. And I will share whatever impressions I'm allowed to share with you, which may not be many, for this far-out preview of uh, uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. But yes, we will give you a very special Thanksgiving Eve edition of the Revengers podcast to make up for the fact that, you know, there's no, there, there won't be a fanboy and there won't be a fanboy garage next week. All right. So I just want to make sure you guys know what to expect from the Revenge of the Fans podcast network. Okay. So your referral this week is The Devil's Advocate. Uh, I love that movie. And if you haven't seen it in a while, go see it again. It's, it's filled with little treats. And I remember I loved it in high school. You know, it's Keanu Reeves, it's Al Pacino, it's it's how the world got to know Charlize Theron, really, for the first time ever. It was like her big crossover moment where she did that movie, and suddenly from that point on, she was a star. Um, it's just a good, weird movie. It, it, it's, it's uh, I don't even want to summarize the plot for you, but The Devil's Advocate, look it up, Keanu Reeves, Al Pacino. Uh, I'd love to know what you guys think of that thing. Because I still quote, I still have memorized Al Pacino's monologue from the final scene about who are you carrying all those bricks for anyway? Anyway, um, so yeah, Devil's Advocate is this is this week's referral from the Fanboy Podcast. Check it out. I know a bunch of you did uh, take me up on my offer to see Wind River over on Netflix. And if you haven't done that yet, I still strongly recommend that you do. And those of you who did see it, got back to me and told me that you're very happy you did because Wind River was dynamite. See, I I try not to steer you wrong, folks. When I when I recommend a movie, it's because I think I know my audience and I think I know what you might like. Because if you like me and my sort of weird, twisted sensibilities, then, you know, you might also like these. So, Devil's Advocate, check it out. Let me know. Thank you for listening to episode 80 of the Fanboy Podcast. And until two weeks from now, life is chaos. Be kind. Adios.